0: Uh, Deirdre Robertson, Robertson, Deirdre Robertson, let me get it right. Anybody know that name, Deirdre Robertson? That's not surprising. Though you don't recognize her name, I would be surprised if most of you have not heard the sound of her voice before. Uh, She read some of the most famous words ever recited on American soil. It was October 1995. She was the clerk for the Los Angeles County Superior Court. And the whole world stood still while she read. She tripped over the name Orenthal, but not over what came next. Not guilty. When she uttered these words, the watching world either breathed a gigantic sigh of relief or irrepressible anger, depending on what party you were in. O.J. Simpson's body instantly recoiled. He breathed his own sigh of relief, and a faint smile appeared at the corners of his mouth. Well, statistically speaking, a large portion of Americans believed in his guilt. Certainly the arrows of evidence seemed to point in that direction towards OJ, the bloody sock, the expensive bloody shoes, the undersized glove, the speeding white Ford Bronco chase, hair evidence, fiber evidence, we could go on. If you don't know who O.J. Simpson is, maybe I'm just showing my age this morning, I'm not sure. Take it from me, it was a very famous day in American history, way back in 1995. Now wonder whether or not this evidence was contrived or planted, we may never know. That's not the point this morning. The point is that the evidence in that case demanded a verdict, and the jury made the call. Right or wrong, they made the call. Our text this morning, Psalm 50 will also demand a verdict. It paints a picture of another courtroom that took place even 3,000 years before O.J. Simpson stood in that Los Angeles courtroom. So take a look with me, if you will. Look at verses one to three. And here at one to three, you can sort of picture a modern courtroom drama. Uh, I grew up on Matlock, which is the unquestionable king of all courtroom dramas. I know you all agree. But in these dramas, we're probably familiar with the moment when the the judge comes into the room. There is silence. There's respect. There is focused reverence. That's what's happening in verses 1 to 3. The God of the universe emerges from his chambers and into his courtroom. And you can just feel the holy weight of his presence. The mighty one summoning the earth, verse 1. Verse two, the perfection of his beauty shining forth. Verse three, a devouring fire who does not keep silent. Already, Asaph, Asaph is the name of the dude who wrote this psalm, already Asaph is letting us in on something. He's saying, guys, this is not the judge that you want to trifle with. Maybe some judges are going to let you off easy, but this isn't one of them. Don't play with this judge. That's what Asaph is setting us up to believe here. Now, if you have a complicated story or a difficult history with some abuse in the church or some abuse by church leadership, this kind of description of God may be triggering for you. I don't know. But I just want to encourage you to hang on all the way through the end. Be patient. God is as generous in his pardon as he is severe in his judgment. He's as generous in his pardon as he is severe in his judgment. Uh, He isn't one without the other. He isn't generous without judgment. He is perfectly both. Generous in his pardon, severe in his justice. Look at verse 4. More courtroom jargon here. It says, He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. And look at verse 6. God himself is judge. Then in verse 5, he calls the defendants to the stand, his people, that's us. He says, gather to me, my faithful ones. We're going to put them on the stand, try them. In verse 7, we see God himself as the chief witness. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will, here's the courtroom language, I will testify against you. Now, maybe all this courtroom language gives you the jitters. I don't know. Maybe judgment language raises your hackles. Maybe God as judge just seems depressing and threatening and ridiculous to you. Maybe you're a, you ain't the boss of me kind of person. I don't know. All of us have that in us to some degree, I think. The scriptures tell us as much. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But if you find yourself in the category of having your hackles raised because of this judgment, ask yourself, what would you think of the policeman who never arrested the rapist? What would you think of a parent who never corrected a wayward child? What would you think of a judge who never sentenced a murderous felon with a harsh sentence? What would you think of them? You would think they're not doing their job. They're not holding high enough the standard of justice. How could we think anything else or think anything less of the one transcendent, three-times-holy perfectly beautiful, fiery God of the Bible. He is nothing less than perfectly just. God alone has the ultimate rights to judge because he's the one who set the universal moral code. He's the one who in his nature decided what is good and what is wrong. Therefore, he alone stands atop the universe's org chart. There's no one higher than the God of the Bible. He doesn't only enact justice, he actually does it perfectly every single time. Because he is perfection, personified, he cannot possibly, in his nature, let one little thing slide. It's not in his nature, and nor should it be. We shouldn't have a God, we shouldn't want to worship a God who lets anything slide. We wouldn't want a God who was flexible on justice. Just like if you had a family member killed, you wouldn't want that judge to go soft on the guilty. God is exactly that way, only in pure perfection, inflexibly just. So, no small, wandering, devious thoughts, no selfish deeds, no affair in secret, no biting word behind someone's back. You may not like some of the things the Bible has to say about you in your lifestyle. It may call you out in some ways that make you feel uncomfortable, but not one of our sins is unseen and unlogged. Harsh words this morning, huh? God is the perfect all-seeing judge. This is bad news for each person in here. Young or old, rich or poor, it's bad news. Now maybe you're like, dude, I come to church for the encouragement. Can you lay off a little bit this morning? When is that coming, huh? Where's the encouragement? Well, here's the thing. There is this amazing, undefeated defense attorney available to you in the courtroom. So don't fret. And we're going to talk about this in a bit. But for now, just know that God is the all-knowing judge. And no matter how you think, or no matter how much you try to manipulate the people around you to perceive you in a certain way, You can't fool God. He's the all knowing judge. His sentencing of you will be absolutely just. Now, because the majority of us in here, I think, would be professing Christians, I'm planning to mostly address y'all today, okay? Especially in the first 15 verses. That's why I had uh, Jody this morning stop at verse 15 for us. I want to especially focus on those. But for those of us in here who are just a little bit more doubtful of Christianity, maybe you just really question this Jesus character. Maybe you're not certain about his claims. I I would love to just speak with you just briefly this morning, if you don't mind. If you do mind, I guess you'll have to leave because I'm going to say it anyway. (laughs) Uh, The Bible has some kind of shocking things to say to all of us in here. I mean, look at verse 16. But to the wicked, God says... Stop there for a second. To the wicked. None of us in here want to be called wicked this morning. The author, Asaph, again, he's contrasting the group God was addressing in the first part of the psalm, in the first 15 verses. That's why he uses that contrasting word, but, there, to start verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, skip up to verse 5, where God says, gather to me my faithful ones. In other words, First, this is God speaking, first I was addressing my people, my faithful ones. Even though they're straying a little bit here, I'm talking to my people, Christians in our modern vernacular. But now, in verse 16, now I want to talk to you wicked people, Whew. those who are not my people. Now, I just want to encourage all of us not to be too put off by this term wicked. It applies to all of us, Okay. In contrast with a holy God, we are all wicked. We all need someone to plead our case in the courtroom before the judge. Because we have no case. We have no case to offer the God of the universe that says, yep, that's a good one. I'm going to keep that one. None of us are good. Not even one. God demands that we be perfect, yet we click the link and we lust. God demands our perfection, but we cheat on our spouses. God demands perfection from us, but we steal from our employers. We are the wicked. The question is, will you be held accountable by the judge, or will he exonerate you based on someone else's defense of you? Well, I feel like today has so far has been pretty hard-nosed, and if you're just visiting or you're you're new in the in the last couple of weeks, uh, it's it's not always this way. I promise. Uh, But this text, Psalm 50, is here for our good, and it's pretty severe. But I think it's severe in the way that a doctor has to go to a patient and say, look, you are eating yourself to death. Please, stop. It's going to kill you. This text is severe in that way. Stop. Stop acting in this way. Stop rejecting Jesus and come. This, This severity of Psalm 50 is actually the deepest form of kindness. Psalm 50, 16 to 23 that we're not gonna really weigh in on today. Is that kind of warning for you, though, if, if you're not a Christian? It is severe, but it's kind. And my prayer is that you'll be able to see it like that today. All of us in here stand condemned by our nature. But there is this crazy, amazing, beautiful hope for all of us here today. If you listen carefully, as I transition into talking mostly to those who have set their hopes on the risen Christ, if you listen closely, I think you'll be able to hear and track with me on this amazing hope. And I hope that by the end of our time together today, my prayer is that that you'll at least be intrigued and willing to ask some more questions. If you are in that category, if you are intrigued and you wanna talk a little bit more about Jesus, about his claims, about whether or not he was even a real historical character, it would be a joy and a a pleasure and a, a a joy and a pleasure. It doesn't get any better than that, I guess. So it's gonna be a joy and a pleasure and an honor um, to speak with you. Uh, so come, s- come grab me afterwards. i be happy to talk with you about that. Um, so though we've kind of started off on fire here with the temperature like to the nines, I just want you to hang on because the pure water of the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to cool off this heat. It's going to quench the fire fully. In fact, so fully that none of us have to suffer under the just wrath of this judge. This is just the best news ever, so stay tuned this morning. Professing Christians, we're going to sort of focus in on those first 15 verses where God addresses his people for the time we have left. Now, believe it or not, the case that is being made against Christians here has to do with their money. Gulp. Now, if you were listening carefully when the text was read, you probably would notice that the word money was nowhere used in the text. But today... Our currency of worship is different than it was when these words were penned. The worship currency then was sacrificial offerings. The worship currency now is sacrificial financial offerings. Psalm 50 is addressing the sacrifices that people would bring into worship, slaughtered animals, which again, if, if you're new to Christianity or new to the Old Testament, if that sounds strange to you, there's a purpose behind it beautiful imagery behind it. I'd love to speak with you about it. Track me down. So today we're going to talk about the modern equivalent with the sacrificial money that we, we bring to worship. So I think the applications are going to look pretty similar for us as they looked to the original people who, who were reading and submitting to the words of Psalm 50. Now, from the jump, I totally want to put all my cards on the table and admit to you that this could be a totally awkward topic for a pastor to speak about right this is one of those things that i I, I step into with a little bit of of trepidation uh if again if you're new to trinity or this is your first time with us this morning you should know that this also is not the norm for us i promise we don't talk about money a lot Uh, one of the advantages uh, of of being a church that is committed to something that's called expositional preaching all that means is that we just want to open up the bible and expose it for what it says. And then we want to work progressively through the Bible. Uh, it just means that we don't get to avoid uh, the, the, the topics that might be a little bit difficult for us or uncomfortable for us or especially challenging for us. That's an advantage for us. Um, and so we get to address a, a, maybe a little bit more difficult of a topic this morning in the topic of money. But we don't do it all the time. Uh, now, the kind of surprising reality maybe for you is that the Bible actually addresses money a ton More than 800 times, a large chunk of Jesus' dialogue in the Gospels is related to money in some way. In fact, he talks about money in the Gospels more than he talks about heaven and hell combined. It was a big deal for Jesus. So I say all that to say that even though I want to be careful with how I talk about money as someone whose livelihood is dependent, in some sense, on your money, I want to be careful about how we address this. Even though I want to be careful about how we talk about it, I also don't want to be guilty of neglecting the discussion of it. And I don't want to be embarrassed about something that Jesus himself was not embarrassed to address. I don't want to blush if Jesus doesn't blush. We should confidently hold to what he has said, even on a topic as protected, as private, and as polarizing as money is. Jesus talked about money a lot. But if this is such such a popular, unblushing topic for Jesus, why is it so, so taboo for us these days? Well, I definitely think this topic has been abused, totally. I YouTubed pastors asking for money recently and was met with no small amount of total garbage. Google it if you want or YouTube it if you want. Pastors asking for money. There's no shortage of pastors asking for money. The Bible, money, and Jesus have been abused by greedy men and women for centuries, lining their pockets by leveraging religion. We want to stay far away from that. Still the money we spend tells us what we actually value. Someone said, give me 5 minutes with your checkbook and I will tell you where your heart is. How we spend our resources can can reveal what idolatry is in our hearts. It has in mind. Listen to these words from Randy Alcorn. He says, when it comes to money and possessions, the Bible is sometimes redundant, often extreme and occasionally shocking. It turns many readers away. Interfering with our lives and it commits the unpardonable sin. It makes us feel guilty. If we want to avoid guilty feelings, it forces us to invent fancy interpretations to get around its plain meanings. Many of us come to the Bible for comfort, not financial instruction. If we want to know more about money, we're more apt to pick up the Wall Street Journal or Fortune or Forbes. Scripture should concern itself with what's spiritual and heavenly. Money is physical and earthly. The Bible is religious, money is secular. But this, that the Bible is religious and money is secular, this is just not the story of the Christian Bible. Right off the bat here in our passage, we see that God isn't happy with his people. Look at verse 7. He's like, listen up, I'm about to speak out against you. And what is he going to say? Nobody wants to hear this from God. I will testify against you. That is a rough way to start your week on this Sunday. God testifying Against you. What is he upset about? Well, he's disappointed with his people's mindset about generosity. And he details some faulty perspectives on generosity. Some faulty perspectives on generosity. But he starts, interestingly, by telling them what he is not upset about. Look at verse eight. He's like, guys, it's not the sacrifices. You've done plenty of those sacrifices, you're showing up for worship. You're putting in the work, you're checking all the boxes, you're good there. I'm not, I'm not upset about that. Not upset about that. The indictment is not that they have neglected to give sacrifices. The indictment is that they are giving sacrifices with a faulty mindset. Or in our modern vernacular, it might not be that many of us are not giving. It's that we are giving with a faulty mindset. But I do think we should sort of take a second and step back here and And think carefully about this. Some of us would not even get this encouragement from God right now. He couldn't come to us and say, look, I'm glad you're giving, but you're giving with the wrong mindset. He wouldn't be able to say that to some of us because we're not giving at all. We haven't hit this bare minimum threshold yet. Maybe you have very little to give and you think, ah, what's the use? I I, I barely have anything to contribute. Does it make any difference at all? But that's actually beside the point. God is not put off by the smallness of our offerings. If you offer a sacrificially small offering, he's so pleased. Like a mom who gets a handful of dandelions in the dead of summer. Mom is so pleased. But maybe you have lots to give. You need to understand that God is not impressed by the largeness of your gifts. Like Bill Gates getting 20 bucks on a birthday card. He's not impressed. The amount doesn't matter what the mindset, the heart behind it, does. Do you have a little margin for giving? Do you have a big margin for giving? God just desires a grateful heart that is generously responsive to his redemptive deliverance. In fact, that's today's text's big idea. If you're tracking with, like, if you want one big thing to take home with you, what this text is saying, this is it. God wants to have us having grateful hearts that are generously responsive to his Redemptive deliverance. God calls on his people to be generous, but he grounds it in his deliverance. Generosity is grounded in God's deliverance of us. Look all the way down at verse 15. He says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Deliverance. God's deliverance of us, on this side of the cross, it's through Jesus. God's deliverance of us grounds and fuels our generosity. It grounds and fuels our generosity. But the people here that Psalm 50 is addressing have a faulty mindset on generosity, and it's seen in the next few verses. I think we could sum it up like this. God needs my generosity. The mindset of these people is that God somehow was indebted to these people or needed them, and he was dependent on his people for his food or for strength, and that's the indictment here in, in, in these first uh, I guess starting in verse 7, their mindset behind their sacrifices is kind of like an insult to God, as if he is needy or dependent on them. So he says, look at verse 9, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. It probably doesn't at first seem like this, but this is a super prickly sentence for God to be saying to his people. It'd be like God looking at you this morning as you're sort of pulling out your checkbook or your wallet or something and saying, put that checkbook away. I will not accept your sacrifice. I don't want that. Or closer to home, like the story we just told, like a mom looking that child in the eyes and saying, put those dandelions away. I don't want those. There's a prickly sentence. And this is because God wants to convince us that he doesn't need our generosity. God does not need our generosity. Consider these words from, from John Stott. He says, the riches of Christ are unsearchable, like the earth, they are too vast to explore. Like the sea, too deep to fathom. They are untraceable, inexhaustible, illimitable, inscrutable, and incalculable. What is certain about the wealth Christ has and gives is, is that we should ever come to the end, never come to the end of it. God does not need your generosity. And we see why next. Another faulty perspective on giving. The next one is: I own my stuff. I own my stuff. We can see more clearly here what the insulting mindset was and what the people were on trial for in God's courtroom. They had a view of God that made him dependent on them, a view of God that made him dependent on them. And they slipped into this silly notion that their gifts were somehow meeting God's needs and that he was going to be at a loss without them. So he's like, and tra- track with me here through the, through the passage uh, in verse nine. He's like, guys, let's not get this twisted, Okay. I don't need your bulls and goats. And even if I did, I wouldn't tell you. Look at verse 12. Know why? Because they're my bulls and goats in the first place. Verse 10, every beast, every cow, every bird, if I wanted them, I'd just go grab them because they're mine. All right? There are no exceptions. God owns it all. In a very real sense, human beings, you're a human being, I am, we own nothing. We own nothing. What we call ownership is really just management. What we call ownership is really just management. God could never steal because there's nothing that he doesn't own. And being this independent is incomprehensible, I think, for the most part for us. We sleep a third of our lives away. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. We stop three times a day every day to eat unless you're intermittent fasting. Then you stop once or twice. Verse 12, he says, If I were hungry, implying that he isn't hungry, but if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Us, though, we get up early to get our kids to school because they need to learn to grow up to be like us, who literally grind it out every day at the workplace so that we can get a paycheck, so that we can feed ourselves and our kids, so that they can grow up and grind it out for their kids. Right? It's just this cycle. We are incredibly dependent creatures. God is utterly independent. Our days are completely shaped by our needs. Money, food, sleep, repeat. Money, food, sleep, repeat. Money, food, football, sleep, repeat. (laughs) Did you know that scientists estimate that 86% of all species are still undiscovered? 86%. And God owns them all. As of this year, more than 80% of our oceans are unmapped still. 80%. That means that when God was creating, he was just flexing. Mostly for his own sake. Because we haven't even seen the majority of what he's made. Over the course of our history of humanity, we've only gotten around to about 20% of all that God has made wild. God's bigness is no joke. He doesn't need our generosity. It's not what what we own that fuels generosity. It's what he owns that fuels generosity. We're not owners. We're just managing what he owns. And this should free us up to be more generous because it's not our stuff in the first place. All things were made by him and for him and without him there's not anything made that was made. He isn't served by human hands as though he needed anything. For he himself gives to all men breath and life and everything. There is like this real comfort when God is flexing. There's just, there should be like this sense of settledness for you. Because it's all his in the first place, and because it's all his, we can step away from the grind and from the hustle to the stop and just sort of let out a contented sigh and say, It's okay. It's going to be okay. It's all his anyway. If we have a shortfall this month, it's going to be okay. God's got this. I think this particular revelation is the most offensive thing to humans of all. It's this. God doesn't need us. But he loves us. If you think about it, for most things in our lives, we love what we need. We love what we need. We love certain kinds of foods. We love certain kinds of drinks. We love all kinds of naps. We love what we need. Not so with God. He loves those he doesn't need. This ought to fill your heart with worship, and it ought to fuel generosity in your hearts through your wallets. God loves me even though he doesn't have to and he doesn't need to. So when we're clenching our money or our things tightly in our fists, not wanting to give it away, and I put myself right there with you, when we're doing that, we're borrowing muscles that he gave to us to hold on to what isn't ours in the end anyway. He owns it all. He's completely nonplussed about what we think we own. Anything we offer him is his in the first place anyway. This is why I think it's unwise for us to compartmentalize our lives. categories it's all his it's not just your quiet time that is god's during your day all your time is his it's not just your sundays that are god's all your days are his it's not just your offering money that is god's all your money is his so he is worthy of every bit of everything for the simple fact that he owns it it's his anyway so we should stop acting like it isn't his in the first place he's worthy of it because it's his I've told this story before, but I think it bears repeating. If there are any active PTO members, parent-teacher organization, if there are any active PTO members in here, you got to help a brother out, okay? Something has got to change with our PTOs. I have in my possession, in my coffee cabinet, a uh, a Disney Princess coffee mug. It's beautiful, it's pink and it's purple, it holds coffee, it it does its job well. But I didn't need this coffee mug. I was not in the market for another coffee mug. I didn't buy this coffee mug, except that I did buy the coffee mug. See, every year in the first week of December, my kids bring home these brightly colored half sheets of paper. And this is where we need systemic change in our PTOs, okay? There are these manipulative advertisements for something called holiday shop at your local public school. The basic idea is this. Please send in obnoxious amounts of cash with your kids so that they can buy you Christmas presents with your money. So what do we do? We send in the money with glad hearts. And our kids come home with gifts that they bought, that we bought. And all kidding and sort of sarcasm aside, we love these gifts even though we bought them. It almost makes it more special. Our kids know that they can't afford these gifts for us, so they ask for money to buy gifts for us. They're doubly dependent on us for them to be generous to us. This gift they don't own and give back means more to me than just about anything in the world. Coffee tastes sweeter in those mugs. They're so excited when they come to me asking me for money that they can spend on me. You better believe in some small way I was fully fully worthy of that mug because I owned it, even though they bought it. We cannot afford adequate gifts for God. So we borrow from him in order to give gifts to him. It's all his anyway. We're doubly dependent on him for us to be generous to him. And here's the amazing thing. These gifts that we don't own and give back to him are wonderfully meaningful to him even though they're borrowed offerings. You better believe he's moved by us, coming to him and asking for help so that we can give generously to him. Maybe you're still feeling the tug of discomfort in your heart, like this is an uncomfortable topic to be talking about, especially coming from you, Josh. But I want to remind you, and I want to remind me, that even if we just kept all our money to ourselves, we would still be dissatisfied Listen to this quote from a guy named James Smith. He says, The heart's hunger is infinite, which is why it will ultimately be disappointed with anything merely finite. Humans are those strange creatures who can never be fully satisfied by anything created, though that never stops us from trying. This morning, let the generosity of Jesus keep you from trying to scrape and claw for worth and value in this life. Well, what should we do if we have fallen into this sort of upside-down mindset That treats our possessions as though they were ours and not God's. That treats God as though he is somehow poor and deficient without us. What do we do? Well, the answer is not hanging the noose of duty and obligation around your neck. You must give or else. It's not what Psalm 50 is saying. That's not what I'm after. It's not what God is after in our hearts. No one is trying to guilt you or shame you into anything this morning. Least of all, God himself. Verses 14 and 15 hold the answer for what should fuel our generosity. The second point this morning, faithful reasons for generosity. And the first is thanksgiving. Look at verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. In other words, it's a response to something that God has done for you. If you have something to give, it's because it belongs to God and because he gave it to you. If it's a mug, it's because I gave the girls the money and the license to buy it. All of our giving is really God's giving to us. And it's a response to what he's done for us. Look at the second half of verse 14. Perform your vows to the Most High. So we've got uh, faithful reasons for generosity, it's thanksgiving. And second, vow keeping. Now, this is kind of like an unfamiliar idea, I think, for us today. It wouldn't have been unfamiliar for the original recipients, but I think Psalm 66 explains what a vow is. You can follow with me on screen. Um, Psalm 66, 13 and 14 say, I will come into your house with burnt offerings. David says, I will perform my vows to you. Here's what a vow is. That which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. So a vow is a promise that you make to God when you're in trouble. Help me with this and I'll do this. I read an example of what like a a modern vow might be earlier this week and it went something like this. Suppose like the car mechanic calls you sometime this week. And he says, look, your car needs new axles and it needs new brakes. It's going to cost you 750 bucks. And you cringe. Is there no other way? 750. And he responds, no, the shot. And you have no other choice, right? Fine, go ahead. Uh, Make the repairs. Well, might the Spirit lead you to make a vow with your family over dinner? Father, please get it done more inexpensively than the mechanic said. And then you make your vow. Lord, if you do this, I will give to the ministry of the church. Whatever you save on this, Repair, I'll give you a portion of whatever you allow us to save on this bill. That would be like a a modern vow. Somehow, we were going to live without the money before in order to have a working car. So theoretically, we can live without it for the sake of the ministry too. Now, that's a vow. Hear me clearly. God never in the scriptures requires us to make vows. In fact, in Deuteronomy 23, he he says that very thing. He does not require us to make vows. But faithful generosity would mean that sometimes we might offer God a vow. I wonder what what vow you could make this week or this year that would allow you to be able to increase your generous giving even just a little bit. How many subscriptions are you paying for each month? Do you need them all? Might an eternal investment be worth considering instead of one of those uh, subscriptions? How many coffees do you buy a week? What vows could you make in response to God's kind deliverance of your soul? Well, faithful reasons for generosity, thanksgiving, vow-keeping, and now, glory-giving. Glory-giving. Look at verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. As God provides for you, we give him glory. Give him glory. Use your mouth, use your wallet, use your energy, use your resources to give God glory. Your generosity should be rooted most fundamentally in the soil of your deliverance from sin and death and hell itself. It was for the psalmist in verse fifteen, and it should be for us. God says, "I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me." If this was true for the psalmist before the cross, how true must it be for us? Must it be for us after the cross? God is worthy of your radical, risky generosity because of his generous deliverance of us. He owns all things. He needs nothing. And in Jesus, he's given us everything. That's what fuels our generosity. Through the megaphone of Jesus' suffering, God shouts to us, his kids. He says, I love you. I love you and you have nothing to prove. Here's my son. Here's Jesus who became poor that you might become rich. He was generous on your behalf for every time your ugly, stingy, greedy heart says mine. Jesus was generous every time in your place when your heart was saying mine. So here is a is wacky, counterintuitive message from the foot of the cross. And this is totally a weird thing to say in a sermon about giving. But it's the best, most freeing news that you could hear this morning in a sermon about giving. You Ready? In order to be loved by God, you have to give zero dollars to God. It's the truth. In order to be loved by God, give zero dollars to God. This is what makes those snake oil salesman charlatan preachers on TV uh, a little bit backwards in their thinking, very much backwards in what they're thinking. They don't get it. The most powerful motivation for faithful sacrificial giving isn't guilt. It's gospel. It's deliverance. It's the good news that Jesus, for the joy set before him, gave himself for us. God loves joyful givers because it reflects his own joyful heart, joyful, generous heart. God never once says, I love big givers. He says, I love joyful givers. Now, some of us in here are in so much debt, we can't even begin to think about giving. We would love to help you with this if you want help please let us know and we can put you in touch with someone that can help you come up with a process of how to wisely dig out of that. But Jesus, though he was rich, became poor for our sake so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. God loves sacrificial givers because it reflects his own sacrificial son. God never says he loves big givers. He just says he loves sacrificial givers. And when we begin to grasp that God owns all things, that he needs no things, and that in Christ he's given us everything. our hands can begin to be opened and loosen their grip on what we arrogantly call ours. When God's generosity begins to sort of jar us out of our comfort zone, it should fire up the engines of generous giving in us. Whether to the church or some needy members in the church or organizations represented by members in the church that are seeking to meet really Uh, concrete physical and spiritual needs in our community, it should ignite the engines of generosity in us. No one has ever been more generous than Jesus. I mean, he left the epic joy of heaven for what in today's society would have been like life on welfare checks. Think about that. The Lord of the universe living welfare paycheck to welfare paycheck so that he might pay a debt so large that all the money in all the world could not pay the debt. God's generosity to us in Jesus is astounding because in it we are forgiven. Jesus is that undefeated defense attorney I talked about earlier this morning. Man, all of us, if we're honest, all of us are stingy. More often than we'd like to admit, I don't want to give to a need when I see it because I think, "What, what could I do with that money for myself? he give you story after story where my heart is prone to wander in that way. But thankfully, in the gospel, we get access to Jesus' perfect record on our behalf. He was always generous and never stingy. For all those who stand before the judge, remember we're in the courtroom right now of Psalm 50. For all of us who stand before the judge, with Jesus as their defending attorney, there is no condemnation for you. Because when God makes his final judgment of you, You don't want your performance to be the measuring stick. Your generosity, if that is the measuring stick for whether or not you get accepted by God, the judge, you are in trouble, and so am I. You want Jesus' generosity in your place. How do we get exonerated then? Only by faith in Jesus, who stands up to the judge and says, This guy is guilty, but I offer my perfect record in his place. I'll take his guilty record, and I'll suffer the penalty. And so Jesus gets sentenced to the cross for my stinginess and I am pardoned for his generosity. It's a wild exchange. Amazing. If that is not your story this morning, if no one has paid your debt, I'm not talking about your financial debt, I'm talking about the spiritual debt that you have earned by sinning against the holy God. If no one has paid your debt, then the, the guilty sentence falls on you, friend. Guilty. Unpardoned. Instead of breathing your last breath, whenever that may be, with that sentence on your head of guilty, would you just, would you consider this morning placing your faith and hope in Jesus, the only one who can exonerate you based on his perfect life? Would you let that undefeated attorney defend you? Look, I know that Christianity makes some Christianity makes some gigantic and startling claims but can I just encourage you today to not leave those unexamined. If you had a lottery ticket sitting on your dining room table right now, you'd be foolish to at least not scratch that bad boy off and see if you want something, right? Consider the claims of the Christian Bible and see what God might do through his holy word in you. God's forgiveness of us is meant to compel our own giving for his glory. Let's follow the lead of our generous advocates, our generous savior, our generous defending attorney. God desires grateful hearts that are generously responsive to his redemption and his deliverance. Will you pray with me? Father, please soften our hearts. Restore us to cheerful generosity. We need your help in this. Amen.